Are you willing to put aside all speculation and announce to the people here that you are not running in 2020? No. Overall, wages are down. People are working longer hours for less money. Obamacare is illegal immigrants. Uh, African Americans uh, being mistreated in society. Noting that world leaders laughed at President Trump. Trade war. You know what it is? My new slogan. America great. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of 2020 Vision. I'm Drew Sheldrick. My guest this week has worked for two US presidents in a variety of roles, including as White House Assistant Press Secretary under President Ronald Reagan and as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs under President George H.W. Bush. Kim Hoggard joins me now. Kim, thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start by asking about this administration's relationship with the media. As someone who's worked as as a White House Press Secretary, uh, did you ever think you'd see the day where a daily White House press briefing was just scrapped all together and abandoned by an administration? No, it's quite surprising. And it's not just the White House press briefing that's not being held daily. It's the State Department, the Pentagon, and that's a result of the White House not doing it um, because they take their direction from the White House. So, yes, it's... it's, um, very unusual, and it's not really serving the purposes of the Trump administration, in my opinion. Um, they need to be coordinating their messaging, and they're not, and it's showing. Um, in the case of the impeachment process, the Democrats are way ahead in their planning. Um, the White House is just relying on the president, and it's not enabling any of his staff to go out there on the front foot and take command of the situation. Uh, Donald Trump has had a fraught relationship with the media for for many years, even before he became president. Uh, How much of the blame do you think media outlets actually have to shoulder themselves, though, I mean, the way that things have ended up? I mean, is there any merit to the president's argument that that he's getting a a rough deal from the mainstream press, do you think? Every president complains (laughs) about getting a rough deal. Sure. Uh, Ronald Reagan often was upset by media reporting um, and felt like he could never win. Uh, Every president goes through this. So the advantage for Trump is that he's had Fox News and talk show hosts on his side. Um, So and I think also he doesn't help his case because he's um, not a normal president. He has, according to The Washington Post, their latest count is that, you know, he's led Uh, the way with 14,000 some lies or misinformation. So if you're not building trust with the press, you're not building trust with the public either. And you're going to get that pushback. The the White House press office and the presidency, there's always an adversarial relationship. It's just the nature of the game. So that's to be understood from the beginning. You're never going to get 100% likes and and uh, uh, agreement on what you're doing. You have to be able to take the heat. If you can't take the heat, then get out of the kitchen. But no, I think I think uh, it's very damaging the way they're conducting their public relations because it's really just about the president tweeting. Now, if a president is spending that much time looking at the news media, and tweeting himself or having his aides tweet his written messages, then the business of governing is not happening. 
he's distracted too much, and it's damaging for the country. And But it's also damaging for our relations with other countries because they're all relying on these daily press briefings or the State Department briefings or the messages coming from the Pentagon, and all of that is shut down. So there's also no accountability, and there's no questioning unless um, the president chooses to answer the question. There's no questioning really of other officials in the administration, but they're completely hamstrung. They don't want to get out in front of the president. They have to wait to see what he's going to tweet. And a lot of them have been undermined during the course of this administration because they dared to go out and say something that was then um, corrected by the president. So that takes their power away and it takes their influence away. Uh, so there's, there's just too much chaos going on and there's no um, control over the messaging. The messaging also um, brings together uh, the other cabinet departments. So when I worked at the White House, for instance, we consulted every morning with State Department, Pentagon, uh, press offices uh, and assistant secretaries to determine what was on their plate, what, what were the issues they were going to be facing from their media. And we always orchestrated to have a combined, unified message. Of course, that's not happening in this government. And, we're, and we, the public, are suffering for it because we're not being educated or informed about what the government is up to. I would also say that a lot of what the government can accomplish can't be accomplished because these communication lines aren't happening and the traditional structure of government function is not efficient because of that. You mentioned Fox News earlier. One media outlet the president does appear uh, content with is the Fox News network. If you look at Trump's Twitter feed at times, it appears that he's almost become a TV guide for the Fox opinion <laughs> shows, sort of previewing and, and broadcasting their content. Uh, what do you make of this accusation that uh, these Trump opinion show hosts have almost become surrogate White House press secretaries in this administration? Well, it's certainly a tool for this White House. There's no doubt about that. Um, I don't know why they even have a White House press office anymore, quite frankly, um, because it really doesn't function the way a normal White House press office would function. Um, no other president has had the kind of support in the media that Trump has had. So his complaints about getting a rough deal really do ring hollow. But this has been one of my main concerns uh, about America for the at least 30 years I've been watching this happen, and that is the uh, division that has been created in the country by right-wing media. Um, and it's not just Fox News. It started with talk show hosts on radio in every city and every state around the nation. And my worry is that there's so much opinion masquerading as journalism uh, that people are being misled, in fact, brainwashed with propaganda. Now, this has been steadily happening for 30 years. Roger Ailes, who was the creator of Fox News, um, actually said that if Richard Nixon had had a Fox News, he wouldn't have been impeached. Right. And I think, uh, ironically, 
unless we have a, a renewal of the Fairness Doctrine, which was a federal communications rule over broadcasting that required um, broadcasters to to have contrasting viewpoints, and ironically, that was um, vetoed by Ronald Reagan when it was up for renewal mm, right. in 1987. And a lot of critics say this was the opening of the floodgates to what we now have. I'm afraid that, um, you know, in the age of 24-7 news cycle and the internet and the amount of information available is wonderful, but the information people are getting about the same subject is are different interpretations. Right. And so I don't know exactly how we're going to get past that in America. In Australia, the problem isn't quite as bad. There are elements here, and we know who they are. But uh, there's a strong public broadcaster. Um, America's public broadcaster is not fully funded and is a shadow of the commercial networks. So everything is done for the bottom line over there. Here we have a, the uh, listeners and the viewers of the public broadcaster have a little bit more balance, and we can only hope it stays that way. In this age of news as entertainment um, with re reality TV star president, do you think that things can ever truly go back to the way they are in the United States, uh, certainly in terms of media coverage of the presidency? Or do you think that we'll see a future of presidents using platforms like uh, Twitter and Facebook as a, as a means of circumventing sort of traditional media outlets? You mean, are we ever going to restore order? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think Twitter is unique to this president. As I said before, I, I really don't see a, a normal president, for lack of a better phrase, um, engaging the way he does because it is impossible to conduct the business of government if that's what you're focused on. You really, most all other presidents that we've known, whatever political side of the aisle, they've really been there focused on the agenda. Uh, and they focused on the agenda even, uh, maybe some could say, you know, to their own benefit, like when Clinton was in the impeachment process, he focused on his agenda to try to show that he could do two things at once and, and play down the importance of the impeachment agenda. Um, this you know, I don't know. I don't know whether we can get back to normal ever again. Mainly because of the internet, the uncontrolled aspects of the internet, the lack of regulation, and the lack of understanding by uh, our legislature in the United States and really around the world about the impact of technology. Um, when people go up to to uh, be interviewed on or attend hearings uh, and face questions from congressmen and women, you can tell by the questions. They really don't understand what they're asking about. They don't understand the full implication. I think now we do, obviously, um, after the 2016 election and the Russian interference, uh, clearly, uh, you know, but we don't have a handle on how we're really protecting ourselves from all that. So I think we have a long way to go. And in America, we have a long way to go in smoothing over the divisions. Um, they are real. They're not going away uh, after Trump. They were there long before Trump got there. And uh, uh, that that's going to be very hard for whoever the next president is.
Having worked for two Republican presidents, how much do you think the Trump presidency has, has changed or permanently changed the Republican Party itself? Uh, Trump sort of seems to have continued support from party members and from representatives, uh, despite methods and behaviours that, uh, I mean, to me, seem completely, you know, at odds with the GOP orthodoxy. Yes, well, the GOP orthodoxy, let's talk about that. <laughs> let's. <laughs> because, you know... Um, Reagan, when he was president, uh, he was he was all about small government, uh, lowering the deficits, states' rights, that sort of thing. Well, of course, after his two terms in office, he grew the government bigger than it had ever been, and the deficits had bl- blown out. Um, George H. W. Bush um, had campaigned on the you know read my lips, no new taxes. Well, he raised taxes, and I think that was a responsible thing to do in response to the ballooning, ballooning deficits. Um, that was uh, partly what cost him uh, a re-election. But so what is GOP orthodoxy? Well, we know what it is, but it is when it's convenient to be. So by saying that, I'm saying GOP orthodoxy has been changing over time. Um, after uh, Clinton was elected, and Clinton, I feel, uh, Bill Clinton was elected um, because he moved the Democrats to the center. You know, he was up against a moderate Republican in George H.W. Bush. So, you know, you can't really go left, can you? Yeah. So you come to the center. And I really, and he was a two-term president. And I really think those eight years really pushed some Republicans farther to the right. Where else are they going to go to distinguish themselves? So we, we saw the development of the Tea Party. We saw the development of the Freedom Caucus. So there's all this fractionalization going on within the GOP, which has gotten stronger and more outspoken to this day. So that, that orthodoxy has been moving in this direction for some time. I'm not sure what the GOP orthodoxy is now. I mean, I know what mainstream Republicans want it to be. And in the case of Trump, you know, okay, well, he's lowered taxes. Business and Wall Street are happy about that. Um, uh, he, you know, he's gotten rid of some rules and regulations that people who don't like government intervention are happy about. People who like clean water might not be happy about it. Um, but on trade and other foreign policy matters, Republicans are not happy with Donald Trump's orthodoxy. It's not Republican. Um, they don't support the, they didn't support the uh, China trade war. Um, they don't like that he's uh, given up, abandoned the Syrian Kurds, uh, or that he's withdrawing troops from the Middle East, and uh, his love affair with dictators, and, and particularly with Putin. That goes completely against GOP orthodoxy. So in that sense, he has upset the apple cart. Um, but the Republicans in Congress have pretty much sold their soul because they couldn't get one of their own elected. But Donald Trump could do it. And so he's their front man. And they're going to hold on to him as long as they can uh, until they all go, <laughs> you know, out in a burst of flames, I guess. 
but do you, do you think it's the same? You mentioned sort of things like trade and, and economic issues, but uh, do you think there's a disconnect as well between those sort of traditional family values that the Republican Party has kind of upheld as part of their platform or a, a strong part of their platform? I mean, someone like Reagan, for example, was sort of Mr. Family sort of values. Do you think we're sort of past that for the Republican Party now, ever going back to saying that they're the, the traditional party of family values after someone like Trump leading their party or having the presidency for the last few years? Well, it does seem hypocritical. Um, and I don't know really how anybody can blatantly look at Donald Trump and say that he espouses family values. I have no doubt that he loves his children. Uh, no one doubts that or his wife. Uh, but, you know, he's he's a coarse person. And I think for religious people in America, uh, they've been prepared to overlook that uh, because they want conservative judges. Um, they want to fight abortion. They want to maintain gun rights and other sort of social issues that, in my mind, Republican orthodoxy would dictate why are you wanting government to get involved in those things? Why is government getting involved in decisions that should be personal decisions? Turning to the uh, 2020 election for the moment, you worked for one president who was elected for a second term and one who wasn't. Um, I'm wondering if you're seeing any evidence at this stage that, that President Trump won't uh, win re-election next year, especially given that presidential um, elections tend to favour incumbents in the United States. Yes, they do favor incumbents in as much as uh, the incumbents are making Americans feel good about themselves and that Americans feel the country is in a good place. So in the case of Jimmy Carter, for instance, who Ronald Reagan beat in, in the 80, 1980 election, um, the country was in a bit of a crisis uh, economically and morally. Uh, we had a, uh, an, an economy that had taken a dive, uh, an oil crisis that saw petrol lines around the block, and um, a, a hostage situation in Iran that had gone on for 444 days. And then Carter gave a speech in which he lamented the malaise in the country. Yes, I was yes. a young woman at the time, and... Uh, out just out of university, and I listened to that speech, and I'll never forget thinking, how dare you blame this on me? I'm not in a malaise. Yeah, you have to wonder what his press secretary <laughs> thought of that address. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, he, I understand what he, what he meant in ref, on reflection, but Americans don't necessarily want to hear that. So when Ronald Reagan came along talking about the sh America's a shining light on the hill and so positive uh, about the prospects of America, well, they just took it hook, line, and sinker. Um, you know, and, and uh, in, in the case of, of uh, George W. H. W. Bush, who was a one-term president, he just, he didn't run a very good campaign. He, I think he felt that he earned re-election because he had been the vice president for two terms. He had been a president. He had been all these other, you know, wonderful positions in government that made him a good president, I believe. Um, so he didn't really campaign that hard. The economy had stalled. And of course, he raised taxes. And then, of course, the Clinton um, 
James Carville, campaign, campaign manager, with the campaign line of, it's the economy, stupid. You know, that really brought the focus. And I also think he was held back a bit because he was a seen as sort of a holdover of the Reagan times, and that time had really run its course. People were ready for a change. Um, so, yeah, the the incumbency can is definitely a powerful um, platform to win re-election. I think in this case, uh, for President Trump, uh, for me, the reset, as I call it, was the midterm elections. So my interpretation was that if the Americans came out and sent a signal, then we know which way the country really wants to go. That's been confirmed by local and state elections in which uh, uh, Republicans have lost. Uh, We think in Kentucky, the governor is now a Democrat. And in Virginia, uh, which has been a red state for a long time, is now fully a blue state. Uh, The uh, Legislature has won both houses. Um, it has governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general. All the statewide electoral offices have been won by Democrats. So that's a clear signal that suburban and city voters are coming out. In fact, this little election, uh, the midterm elections in 2018, uh, I think had the largest voter turnout of any midterm elections since the 1914 or something. And, um, so that's unheard of in American politics where you don't have to vote. Midterms are really sleepy. People don't bother. They're coming out and they're they're expressing their point of view. And I think um, we're seeing uh, real shifts happening. The Democrats should take some solace from that. Uh, the, the biggest problem uh, for the Democrats is can they produce a winnable candidate for 2020, that can beat Trump, um, and that remains to be seen. Certainly, all of the candidates they're fielding uh, have uh, terrific experience, and I'm sure most of them would make very good presidents. Um, and we might return to normal times. In fact, uh, but whether they can garner one that is going to get the votes. Having said that, though, Trump only won 46% of the popular vote. So he needs every single one of those votes, then some, to win. And the and the winds of change are blowing, I think. So I think the Republicans need to be working. Now, on top of that, he's got this impeachment inquiry. Yeah. Uh, hearings now. You know, I worked in two administrations <laughs> that had very little scandal. And, but even the littlest, the smallest blow-up took an enormous amount of time and effort and energy and air out of the room. Um, the, the White House in particular, because of its position in, uh, of power, um, is really a, a reactive place more than it's proactive, at least in the White House press office, I should say. Um, a lot of the thinking and the planning and the vision is happening out in the rest of government. That's why I see this this administration not functioning at all, and and why we're seeing finally the State Department and the bureaucracy standing up. In fact, I was going to say earlier that um, 
on this impeachment inquiry, you know, the Democrats didn't want to go down this road because they knew it was a danger for them coming yeah, into Nancy the election. Pelosi seemed yes. very hesitant. Well, and to... Adam Schiff, yeah. uh, the uh, House chairman. He, not, they could see the electoral problems and why not just wait a year and let the voters decide and that's how the voters feel. And at the moment, that's what the polls are still sort of saying. The majority don't want to see an impeachment process happening because it's a distraction from all the serious problems going on. That's understandable. Um, but, you know, in the Nixon days, uh, that took a long time to come around. And the more information that came out that the Watergate break-in was orchestrated by Nixon, and the more people understood that, the more they came around over time that impeachment was the only way to go. I think the, the cat's out of the bag on this one. The whistleblower laid a blueprint for the Democrats to follow. He or she said, here's what the issue is. Here are the leads, and here are the articles of impeachment. Basically laid it out in that uh, complaint very clearly. So they had really no choice, the Democrats. If they had not followed up with the impeachment inquiry, uh, they would have been... Um, they would have been negligent in their oath to the Constitution. So it really forced Nancy Pelosi's hand. And now people are coming out of the woodwork, I believe, to, to, to make the play. And uh, as I said, the Democrats are very organized. The Republicans are trying every silly tactic they can, storming the, you know, the shift in security complex in the, in the, on the Hill two weeks ago. Um, so... They they clearly have nowhere to go. They can't discuss the substance because the substance is there. The president has admitted it. His chief of staff has said it's a quid pro quo. Uh, his rough transcript that he released. So so they're attacking. Republicans are attacking the the tactics and the process. Is the concern then, or the worry, I guess, for, for Democrats that, uh, as you say, that, that there's a blueprint being laid out, um, uh, there's there's evidence um, that, that, that he may have, in fact, um, um, warrant a sort of impeachment, but what if people don't care? I mean, we saw similar things with the Access Hollywood tape during the 2016 election. Uh, what if we do get to this point um, that there is, you know, seemingly convincing evidence and then the public still have no mood for impeachment because of the issues we've talked about previously. People are kind of happy, you know, with his you know, judicial appointments or whatever. I mean, what, what's the concern there that if, if the public just doesn't want to come along with this? That is a concern, but I think, like I said, over time and as these uh, hearings begin, people will become educated. They won't just be looking at Donald Trump's tweets. They'll actually have time to think a little bit more about it. Um, it's, I can remember when I was in high school uh, and university, it, which is when the Watergate hearings took place. And they actually, my history teacher at high school rolled in the audiovisual equipment, and we watched the Watergate hearings live because he said, this is history in the making. This is, you know, more important than anything we could study out of the te textbook. And I can remember the day that he resigned. Everyone was glued to the television. 
everywhere you walked, coffee shops, university buildings, uh, every everything was switched on watching constantly. And I think now that we have CNN and you have Fox News, you have 24-7, everybody's going to be be watching this. Um, I don't think it's just going to be an inside the beltway thing. I think over time, um, there will be those always Trumpers that will say it doesn't matter. So what that he, there was a quid pro quo, they got the military aid anyway. But what people need to be educated about, why it's important that the president follows the rules and doesn't flout them, that he doesn't mislead or lie to the public or to others, that he conducts the business of government in a fair and responsible manner, uh, why this is so important to the United States. It's important to its national security. It's in, it's important uh, for the rest of the world to see uh, the United States, which is the harbinger of, supposed to be the example of democracy, um, extolling those virtues, not circumventing them. And his, you started out with your question on press briefings, the lack of transparency and accountability is pretty shocking. And I think over time, and with the impeachment hearings, people will start to move towards uh, an seeing that there's no other way. I actually said at the very beginning of Trump's presidency that I didn't think it was sustainable. And because the institutions in America are so rock solid that eventually I thought there, there's, he's either got to make a big mistake or there's, there's going to be uh, somebody who stands up and starts. And it started with the media counting those lies and misleading statements, you know, covering everything that he said. It's, I mean, part, uh, mainly it's Donald Trump's fault for the way that he speaks and, the, and he conducts business in the negative. Americans are not negative by nature. They're optimistic. To be talked down to all the time and, to, and America, I mean, anybody who goes to America understands how friendly Americans are. They don't talk like Donald Trump talks. He, he doesn't understand that part. He doesn't understand that as a president, you need to be uh, diplomatic, but you also need to be authoritative, but without, you know, you have to be collaborative and you have to negotiate and you have to delegate. And he doesn't really do any of those things very well. I think uh, no matter the result of this impeachment investigation or the, the 2020 election, I think uh, we can agree that it's a pretty momentous uh, moment in US political history. Um, Kim, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks also this week to the Bubba Mara Brass Band and Ketzer for their musical contributions and to the University of Sydney's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences for their studio assistance.